0: Wow. Thank you, Devin, for leading us with passion and zeal. Well done. And thank you, all of you. I feel like I hear, yes, and junior high students, if you want to leave now, this is your moment. It is wonderful to hear you sing it so loudly. I love to hear you, and it encourages me. I feel like I've been challenged by you to come up here and preach with that much excitement. So that's usually not a problem for me, but I, I appreciate it. So wonderful. Well, my name is Thomas, I'm one of your pastors here, and this week we're continuing our series in the parables of Jesus, and we'll be in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Now, it's not uncommon to hear people use metaphors for their experience of life, little word pictures that try to encapsulate what life is like in a short little pithy sentence. Life is a journey. Hmm. Life, that's very different from life is a battle. Uh, which is very different from, life is like a box of chocolates, right? You never know what you're going to get, the wonderful, wonderful wise man has taught us. So... But in hearing and seeing these images, we know if you've been really to other countries or or with people who think differently from you, you've probably learned that they have different words that they use for that and and different ways that they express what life is like. Uh, But at its heart, and you can see in those differences, there are different ways of sort of understanding who am I, what is my purpose, why am I here, what is life like, what am I here for, what's my mission? It might make you wonder, if God were to come from heaven to earth, what would he say? What kind of image would he use to charge our imaginations and give us a picture of what his purpose and mission is? Who he is and where he is from and what he has come to do? Well, thankfully he has given us dozens of these images in the Bible and when Jesus came to earth it was one of his most favorite things to do was to tell little stories, little word pictures that would uh, often correct and provoke, we call these parables parables. That's what we're working through. Today, we're dealing with a little cluster of parables that are some of the most beloved in all of the Bible, and those are the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Today, we're going to look at the first of these, the parable of the lost sheep. So, let me read it for you. Luke 15. If you've got a Bible, I hope you do. I hope you do. Uh, You can take a look with me in Luke 15. Now, And when he come home, comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who, have no, who need no repentance. The reason that Jesus told us this story was to encourage the Pharisees and scribes to reconsider Jesus to reconsider their own lives at a deep level. And he wants to do the same thing for us today by teaching us some lessons about himself. So let's pray and ask God to do this very thing. Heavenly Father, open our eyes, we pray. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see who Jesus is, for who he really is the final and fullest revelation of his Father God, of you. Let us see this clearly. Help us to accept him as he is, not as we wish he would be, not as we would have him be, but as he is, as you are. Help us, even if we have been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, to let this word challenge, encourage, and transform us Help us to learn your heart for the lost sheep. Let us settle for nothing less today than an encounter with the resurrected Jesus that forces us to reconsider our lives. That's what you want to do. We know that's what you want. Help us to want that too. We pray all this in the name of and for the purposes of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage, as I said, helps us to reconsider Jesus. Reconsider Jesus at a deep level by artfully presenting three truths about who God is and why those truths matter. So, the first thing that we see, and it's probably the most clear of them, is that God pursues the lost. God pursues the lost. Uh, let's take a look at the scene and, and sort of round out the context a little bit of this story. I know we're sort of diving into the middle of Luke. Let's understand. If you look just up uh, a couple verses in your Bible, you'll see that Jesus is in the midst of sort of challenging the crowd that's been following him around and, and listening to him. He says, If salt is good, salt is good. but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use. It's, it's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. You just throw it away. And he ends with this exhortation to them. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what it says, uh, the verse immediately preceding our passage today. Uh, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Is there anyone listening? (laughs) And in the very next verse, it says, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near. Why? To hear him. To hear him. The Jewish nation had been defeated by Rome, overrun, and tax collectors were Jewish men who enforced these taxes that supplied the ruling and conquering army with funds so that they could continue ruling and conquering the Jewish people. They were uh, basically the bottom of the totem pole in most people's eyes. Uh, Sinner, the word that's used there, is sort of the, the Pharisees category for anyone who is not living with the moral scrupulousness that they were. And it's only common sense in their minds that the tax collectors and the sinners would be least likely to respond to the call of chapter 14, verse 35, let him hear, let him hear. That certainly these people in their minds were the least likely to draw near to Jesus and hear him. But in fact, they're the very ones that are responding to Jesus' call. Who has ears to hear? The lost. And that's in deliberate contrast to what we see in verse two with the Pharisees and scribes. Rather, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, "This man receives sinners and eats with them." In the minds of these very, very religious people, the godly thing to do with a lost person was to reject and ostracize them. Instead, Jesus, especially at this point in the in the book of Luke, has become famous, indeed notorious. For not just an openness to the lost, but for an intentional pursuit of, in their minds, the wrong kind of company. This story, it, it almost seems as if, you know, here are the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees are grumbling, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And it's almost as if Jesus tells a story as if to say, oh no, it, it's much worse. <laughs> it's much worse than that. It's, I'm not just receiving and eating. And they were thinking to themselves, how can this man call himself a spiritual leader when he is constantly surrounded by people who are not honoring God? On another occasion, we we learned that Jesus dined with a Pharisee in his home, in the Pharisee's home. And a local woman caught caught wind of this, knew that that Jesus was dining there, and and she dared, even though she knew she was a sinner, to come and and be with Jesus, to come and honor Jesus by cleaning and anointing his feet. You might remember the story. And the Pharisee's response to this in that story was to say this to himself. If this man were a prophet, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And this encapsulates the Pharisee's impression of Jesus, that his habit of entertaining the wrong kind of people invalidated his spiritual credentials. He could not be who he says he is Because he is not hanging around with the right kind of people. Surely, they thought, if God were to come to earth, if this man is really who he's claiming to be, he would have spent his time with the right kind of people. The faithful people he would seek out. Who would he be seeking? Not them. He would be seeking out the people who are devoted to him. The people who are faithful to him. He would be spending his time with people like... Well, like me. (laughs) silly when you say it but you can see how Jesus is eager to unmask their self-deception and so Jesus tells this story to hold up a mirror to them to say this is what you look like it's a compassionate move in the end Jesus story is whispering to them is that really what God is like is that really what God would do What man of you, he said, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And you might think, here's Jesus using a wonderful agrarian metaphor, uh, and sort of using their logic against them. Uh, you know, if you're a shepherd, you know you always go after the other sheep, and if you know that, wouldn't you do that in this case too? But there's something else that he's doing. Devin brought this to my attention as she was planning the service this week, and I'm so thankful In Ezekiel 34, 2-4, through one of God's prophets, Ezekiel, he rebukes the leaders of Israel by saying this, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Shepherds of Israel, he calls them. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Jesus is invoking this ages old rebuke of the leaders of his people. The Bible, wow, pulls no punches when it comes to leaders who don't demonstrate God's character. This was challenging for me this week as I read through this I thought, am I am I doing this? Is this this rebuke is for me as well? Uh, I would challenge all of especially those who are leaders here. Let's take this to heart. Um, and Jesus is invoking this rebuke to make a simple point. God's character has not changed. When Jesus came to earth, he was not showing us a new, shiny, with improved features version of God. This is how God has always been. This God has always been a shepherd who has gone after the sheep. It is not Jesus' mission to innovate upon who God was before, but to bring to full manifestation, full uh, revelation, who he has always been. And so his challenge to the shepherds, the leaders, to the Pharisees of that day was, haven't you seen the character of God? His, it turns out, God is like a shepherd who is so eager to maintain the integrity of his flock that he will go to great length to restore those who are wandering away. Uh, that, that passage really concludes in verses 11 through 12, which Devin read for us. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out his sheep. This is hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And Jesus is saying that he himself, he's saying, I myself am the godly shepherd, the one godly shepherd of Israel, in fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, the fullness of God's character. Here I am. He was not being hyperbolic, he was being serious. This is the character of God. God pursues the lost. Not because he wants to, not because he on a flitting whim decided to, it's his character. It's who he is. Quite a few years ago, I was working at an Iowa football game, and this was back in my college years, and I remember one of my supervisors, he was a pretty serious guy and very committed, very hardworking, and um, I remember when we were uh, at one of these games, And he got a phone call from, he never really took sort of personal phone calls, but his his wife had been calling him, calling him, calling him, he finally picked up, and you should have seen the expression on this man's face change, because he found out his son, at this 100,000 people around Kinnick Stadium, his son had been lost, and I mean, absolutely frantic. Some of you have felt this before. I, I know even if you, you know, if you have a kid or whatever it is for you that would be so precious, a dog or something, I don't know what it would be, but for this man, I just remember the franticness in his eyes, his wild-eyed sort of uh, breathing hard, running around the stadium, calling everyone he could, security, whoever, leveraging every possible opportunity that he had to relocate his son who had gotten lost. And perhaps you have felt that sensation too. I know just the other week I was in the park and I thought, I haven't seen Jack for about two minutes. (laughs) And, you know, you have that little moment of sort of like, no, 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 I'm sure, I'm sure he's fine, I'm sure he's fine. But I have and now it's been another minute. And, you know, I might just get up and look around. Uh, Maybe I'm being crazy. I might just look, have you felt that? The pit in your stomach, the drop, the lurch, the sense of, oh, no. This is God's heart of eager and earnest pursuit for the lost. And as for the Pharisees, their attitude was 180 degrees in the other direction. And their mission matched it. They were not burdened to seek out the lost, as Ezekiel 34 and as Jesus showed us. They were too busy kicking them out of their dinner parties. And so I wonder, this is a great challenge for us today. Have we evidenced God's heart of pursuit for the lost? God's call for us is to bear a burden, a burden for the lost. God, it turns out, is like that shepherd. It's like, the, just as we have felt, the burden to share God's heart with those around us, those who do not know him. I know we've we've been talking about this for, it feels like weeks now, because we've been in the book of Acts, and that's been such a feature. And I think what's unique about this passage uh, is... The aspect of Jesus, his criticism is specifically, it seems, of their grumbling. He, he has a care for their emotional state as they consider. Maybe when you think of sharing the good news and pursuing the lost, the lurch in your stomach is not so much for them, it's for you because of how terrifying it is. Uh, I think God's call for us, and maybe this is your prayer even in this moment, is God, give me that kind of heart for them. And help me find people who can help me follow through on it. The implication of that first lesson is clear. If the mission of God, seen most clearly in the person of Jesus, is to pursue the lost, then we, the Pharisees must reconsider their mission, of course, and we must do the same today to align it with what God is doing. Jesus said, as the Father is sending me, so I'm sending you. And so we must do that. We must embody this joyful shepherd in every realm that God has called us to. And so we've learned, God pursues the lost. So reconsider your mission. Second thing we learn is that God rejoices over repentance. That could be the the dominant emotion that seems to show up in here, apart from the Pharisees grumbling, is joy. Joy in the heavens, joy for the shepherd, joy for the whole community. At this point, it's clear. This parable sort of has a misleading title, doesn't it? Uh, The parable of the lost sheep. There is a lost sheep, but who's the star of the story? It's the shepherd. The shepherd is really the star of the story. The sheep is barely described. In fact, what's unique about this, you you know, I might be tempted as a preacher to go, ah, think about the sheep. Enter into the mind of the sheep. Think of how this was for the sheep. That's not really what the passage cares to tell us. All that happens to the sheep is he's found, he's carried, and then he has a party. (laughs) We find out it's only after Jesus tells the story, if you look down in verse seven, it says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, The only thing we find out about the sheep is that at some point in the journey on the shepherd's shoulders or being found, I don't know when, he deeply reconsiders his life, apologizes to God, and comes back into his family, into the fold of the sheep, so to speak. And so Jesus is, of course, himself the, the eagerly anxious, searching shepherd looking for these kinds of sheep. I remember, uh, You know, it's important, I think, too, at this point, to remember, what was repentance to a Pharisee? We have in our own minds, what is repentance? And probably because you've heard me and others from this very pulpit pounding the drum of, repentance is good, repentance is the way forward. We do confession every week because we think that's really true. It's not a step back, it's a step forward. This is how we grow. We learn our weakness. Maybe because we've been beating that drum for so long. But I want you to enter the mind of the Pharisee. What What did repentance conjure up in their brains as a Pharisee? Uh, a few years ago, I was riding my bike, which I often do, riding my bike here to work, and I remember it was sort of early, it was sort of a spring morning, and it was such a nice day. I had a little bit of reading to do. I sat down behind the IMU there on campus, and there's sort of that area right along the river, and there's actually stones that sort of make a little low dock that actually go basically right to the water's edge, and it's just like, it's almost like made for you to jump off of there. I don't know why you would ever do that. Anyway, I was riding my bike there. and. Um, I remember it was the most peculiar thing because I sat down there and my feet almost getting in the water and this man came up, he was also on his bike, he came up, parked behind me and I thought, oh no, (laughs) what is about to happen here? I just thought this is, I don't, I was just anxious and this guy came up about seven feet away from me. He disrobed almost completely, got into the river, not, he didn't jump in, but he went down to the water's edge, Put himself in the water, dunked himself all the way underneath, brought his hands under the water, reached back up, grabbed it, came back out, and he started. He he had brought a towel, he had brought a change of clothes. He was completely prepared prepared for this. Do you know what he was doing? He was baptizing himself. And I, I realized this kind of as he was doing it, and I thought, oh my goodness, (laughs) do you realize you're baptizing yourself three feet away from a pastor? I mean come on and so I, I got to talk to him I got to talk to him and so I, I said uh, good morning I, what do you say <laughs> are you cold I don't know <laughs> good hi uh, good morning I, I remember just tr- I didn't know what to say and I just tried to sort of approach him in a non-threatening way and he could not have been more clearly mad at me um, just kind of cursing me out, did not want my attention on him. He didn't, you know, he hadn't addressed me when he first came up and he, he had put on his clothes and gone on his bike and got out of there as fast as he could. And what I realized is, he was repenting. In his way of understanding it, what he was doing, I, 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 I'm not exactly sure sort of what religious system that was part of, he could have been an Orthodox Jew or something else, I'm not exactly sure. But what, what he was doing was painful for him. He didn't want to be seen. I, me being there was in his mind the worst thing that could be happening he was, he was deeply apologizing he was shameful it was private he, it was painful for him and repentance I think in the mind of the Pharisees was like that private painful difficult it doesn't re- represent a gain of life it's loss repentance is only loss but Jesus built his ministry on repentance In Mark 1, uh, Jesus' great announcement of, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's a call to everyone, not just righteous people. It's called to all people. Repentance, according to Jesus, means turning away from things that dishonor God and asking for his forgiveness and turning toward this new way of living through Jesus. Repent, he says, not just repent, But repent and believe. There's something turning away from sin, turning away from our own ways, and turning toward God and his ways. Believe in the gospel. And the ironic thing is that Jesus and the Pharisees probably would have largely agreed on that definition. Yeah, that's right. Repentance means you stop doing bad things and you start doing the things that honor God. But in the Pharisees' minds, repentance was, like I said, it was a step backwards. Repentance, in the the mind of a Pharisee, was spiritual neediness, And the Pharisees majored on spiritual wealth. To call them to repent was to tell them that the thing that they thought was best about them was not of any use at all. The passage is reminding us that what ultimately attracts God in a lost sheep, in a lost sinner, is not spiritual stamina, it's spiritual exhaustion. Here's how the Pharisees thought, and and listen to how insidious this is, okay? Okay? the Pharisees thought God loves good people and he's also willing to work with tough cases. Isn't that almost right? And exactly wrong. The truth is, God is only willing to work with sinners who come and collapse under the weight of their own efforts into the arms of Christ. Only then are we finally ready to reconsider Jesus at a deep level when we are able to abandon our own spiritual resources and accept what he is offering us, only when he has emptied our hands of all the things that we think we're bringing to him, can we actually receive what he's willing to give us for free. I remember in, uh, in ninth grade, I was in a shop class. It was really fun, actually. Um, one of the projects that we did was we made a boomerang, and it was made of fiberglass. I don't know if you're allowed to do this anymore. It sounds incredibly dangerous. But uh, they let us, me, Ninth grade, make a dangerous weapon. Anyway, uh, but I remember it was made of fiberglass, and sort of one of the last steps that we had to do was we had to um, uh, sand it on a big belt sander, and these big, if you've been in, you know, they're kind of scary. Anyway, they're very scary to me now, as you're about to find out. Because as I was sanding this boomerang, I pushed down too hard on it because I was impatient because I was in ninth grade, and I was pushing down so hard that eventually it got traction, and it sucked my hand in the machine, and. <laughs> the boomerang went skidding across the floor. And I just, you just have that moment of, did that just happen? And then the pain hits about five seconds later. And I looked at my hand, and it's healed now. But it just my pinky had a big big old gash in it. And I remember it was painful. I had to go to the office, I, you know, that whole thing. You've been through it. But you know what was the worst part about it? The worst part was that if, okay, we had this sign up in the shop. And if we went... Uh, I forget what the goal was, but if we want a certain number of days without an accident, (laughs) everyone gets a pizza party. (laughs) So I was the one who costed us the pizza party. I'm so sorry. If you're here, you're watching, it's all my fault. But I think that is, in some sense, it's sort of our natural way, our natural tendency. There's a bit of Pharisee in all of us that our tendency is to think of repentance like that. Ah, 15 days since my last repentance. 60 days. If I get to 90, then I'm a real spiritual champion. In fact, God invites us to come back to him time and time again as we realize, I'm not who I ought to be. I'm not who you made me to be. A daily, a moment-by-moment remembrance that it's only by God's power, only by his sustaining grace within us that we can do anything of value. This is actually very good news. Even though we are so prone to resist it. I can barely let someone pay for my own lunch. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't want to be in your debt. I don't want you to actually, I, I, I don't want it. No, don't do it. But that is what God most wants to do. And what we're most prone to disbelieve. Um, as I was reading this, one of the notes I read um, referred to, actually, you may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas. Which is Gnostic gospel, it doesn't belong in the Bible, sort of this, this uh, sort of heretical version of, of Jesus' teachings. Um, but many of them are sort of similar to what you read in the Bible. And one of the sayings in there is this: it says, Jesus said, What the kingdom resembles, does this sound familiar? What the kingdom resembles is a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. Good so far. <laughs> a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. One of them, the largest, straight away he left the 99 and sought the one until he found it and the story continues basically unchanged and with the two words that they insert there, the largest what's what's in the mind of this sort of pharisaical writer of this of this gospel of thomas well there must be some reason the sheep is worth going after right he must have been the largest (laughs) must have been the largest sheep why else would the shepherd why else would god's heart just overflow with love for sinners must have been the biggest one the most valuable one it was financial We're honest, what, what in your heart, for honest with ourselves, what would you insert there? The kingdom of God. The kingdom resembles a shepherd who had 100 sheep, one of them the smartest, straight away. And therefore, God's heart was moved with compassion. The kingdom of res- resembles a shepherd who had 100 sheep, one of them the most faithful. Straight away, and the shepherd said, I, I must have the most faithful sheep, but what would my flock be with that? The kingdom resembles a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. One of them, the most powerful, the best leader, the most beautiful, the most handsome. The kindest one, the easiest to manage, the one who disappointed him least often. No. No, no. The only thing that can keep us from Jesus is our own goodness. That's one of the things that the Pharisees most desperately needed to hear. Most desperately. That God is irresistibly attracted to your weaknesses. God is going to make greatest use of you when you come to that realization. It's true for me too. And so Jesus has given us that wonderful diagnostic test to see where is it in my heart, where is it in my life that I am not really able to receive him as he is that keeps me from reconsidering him at the deepest level and so far we've learned as we sort of read this along with the Pharisees who this challenge was really for we learn too first that God pursues the lost so we must reconsider our mission and secondly that God rejoices it leads to joy God throws a party when we come back to him with apologies God throws a party God rejoices over repentance so we must reconsider our grumbling Finally, we must see and we must remember this is a story about God loving religious people. God loving Pharisees. Wouldn't it be easy with this parable and with many, the more I've read through all the parables and tried to sort of prepare ahead of time, the more I've realized this is a core theme of so many of the parables. Wouldn't it be easy for us to come to the conclusion that Jesus is fundamentally anti-Pharisee that that he just really does not like religious people. (laughs) These people are trying their best, by the way. They're trying their best to please God. You might think Jesus has basically given up on these people and he's delivering this rant just to get, I don't know, to get some steam off. I don't know. Release some tension. He's had a hard day. No. But think about this. Jesus apparently has thought so much about these Pharisees understood their criticisms, understood their grumbling, that he has not come up with just one story, not two stories. Think about Jesus up early in the morning praying, and he's thinking about these Pharisees, and he's thinking, how am I ever going to get them to see how completely backwards they have this thing? How are they ever going to see the gospel for how good of news it is? How are they ever going to reconsider me and what I'm about to do on the cross for them? Maybe a story would work maybe if I can get them to enter this story, enter this universe that I'll sort of create with words, they can see that they are they are missing it. That does not sound like the behavior of a person who is writing them off. Far from it. Imagine if someone did that for you. They said, I, I'm concerned for you. I've, I've, I've come up with a story to help explain it to you. <laughs> you might be a little frustrated, but you'd say, this is an act of love. They've really thought this through. They've really come up with this. Uh, They've thought deeply about who I am and what will be effective here. What is Jesus doing? God, remember, first lesson we learned, God is the kind of God who pursues the lost. And there's perhaps no one in this story and really in the whole of the Gospels that is more lost than the religious leaders of his day. Think of the prodigal son, the story that's coming up too from this. What's, what is really the moral of the story? Jesus tells that so that they can see, I'm the older son who won't come into the party, won't come into the rejoicing. Think of, the, uh, think of Saul. We, we went through that two weeks ago. Jesus just upending his life. Why? Because he loves him. He loves him in spite of his religiousness, in spite of all of his sort of self, uh, self-justifying behavior. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is pursuing them. Jesus is loving these Pharisees. Jesus is trying to hold up a mirror to them to show them what they really look like. And this is what we need most, too, in order to become joyful repenters. And don't forget, uh, this story is not just sort of a nice story, not just sort of a nice illustration that Jesus kind of came up with. This is his story. This is Jesus giving words to what he is doing on earth. This is Jesus. How far was he willing to go to find his lost sheep? How far would it take to find lost sinners? It would take him all the way to the cross. It would take him all the way to the cross. And the Bible tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him. The joy of our repentance, of lost sinners' repentance, of them coming back to the Lord as he seeks them out, the shepherd who loves. Did you know that is the emotional heart for God, if he does have that? Not that he flits to and fro, but in Jesus, we see the expression of who God really is in his character deeply burdened. Maybe you're here and you're feeling not so much like a Pharisee, but just like a normal person, evaluating the situation and thinking, who is this Jesus? He is the God who has come after you. He is the God who will do nothing, who who will do everything. He, He will stop at nothing to pursue you, to find you, to draw near to you. And every, every one of us, he is ready to forgive us of our religiousness that keeps us from him in its many forms. Jesus loves stereotypically religious people who outwardly think they're better than others. They just think it. Jesus loves low-key religious people who don't think they're better than others. Jesus even loves religious people like us who don't think we're better than very many people. But when we read the story, we go, we're better than the Pharisees. Come on. Jesus loves non-religious religious people uh, who don't think they're spiritually superior, but they do kind of think they're better than other people simply because they do this right or that right, they vote for that person. They're, maybe they're just nicer, I'm nicer than most people. Jesus told this parable because he wants us, all of us, every single one of us in this room, to reconsider, deeply reconsider what is going on in the deepest parts of our heart and to see that the path to joy, as paradoxical as this sounds. Comes not around repentance, not under, not over, but through. And he was willing to go farther than anyone, farther than anyone could ever go through the teeth of death itself to convince us that this is true. As there was joy on the other side of his cross, as there was life on the other side of his death, there is joy on the other side of repentance. And Jesus went that far because of us, because of you. Now, what God wants us to do is bring our hearts to him. Bring ourselves to him. To ask him to show Him us, show us who he really is. To let his character, to let the character of Jesus be all that it is. To impress us, to rebuke us, to challenge us. To overwhelm us. With this joyful shepherd's care and concern for people like you and me. God is a God who pursues the lost. God is a God who rejoices over repentance. And God is a God who loves religious people like us. So let's together reconsider this Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for Christ. We praise you that he has shown us a new way fundamentally different to every other way to live to be the kind of people we want to be or we know we ought to be lord you have breathed new life the potential for new life into this room right now and we pray you would fill us by the power of your spirit to see jesus for who he really is in all of his majesty, in all of his compassion, in all of his glory, in all of his kindness, in all of his suffering, in all of his joy over each of us. And let us yearn to be the kind of church that is like the community of Luke 15, rejoicing, rejoicing over repentance, clapping our hands over it, not hiding in the corner, wishing we could just shine up our scars and pretend we're okay. But coming to God with all earnestness, whether we have messed up big time or whether we are on the daily, moment by moment, ever increasing need for returning to God again, 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 to grow in Him. That is the way you've made it work, Lord. That is how our souls work. Remind us deeply. We know we're prone to forget. And we pray as we take this Lord's Supper, this communion together, that you would fill us with a unique remembrance of all that you have done for us through Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.